Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering 1 Nephi chapters 1 through 5. Now, a brief overview of what's happening in these chapters. In 1 Nephi chapter 1, Nephi tells us who he is, and he describes a vision that his father Lehi has, where he's brought into the council of God, and he sees God on his throne, and he's given a book, and he's instructed that the city of Jerusalem in 600 BC is about to be destroyed, and the Jews of his day mock him and seek to take away his life, and Lehi is warned that he must leave. He must go into the wilderness and leave the city of Jerusalem, and that's really what happens in chapter 2 of First Nephi, where in his dream, he is told to depart into the wilderness, and he was obedient, and he takes his family with him. Now, there's a little bit of grumbling going on amongst some of the brothers, Laman and Lemuel, but essentially that's what's going on there, is that Nephi and Laman and Lemuel and Sam and, and Lehi and Sariah go into the wilderness, and they escape the city. But then when they get out, Lehi is instructed in a dream that the record of the Jews or the brass plates must be obtained and that Nephi and his brothers must go back up to the city of Jerusalem and request from Laban the brass plates, which is a record of the Old Testament from the time period of the creation down to the reign of the kings to the time period that Nephi lived. And then that's kind of the story of chapter three and four, where Nephi and his brothers try three different times to get the plates. And on the third attempt, Nephi is able to acquire them. That's chapter four of first Nephi. So after Nephi gets the plates in chapter five, Nephi tells us that his mother now knows that the Lord is with them. And Nephi discusses what is on the brass plates. So that's a brief overview of what's in these chapters. There's a lot of material here, Bryce. You could do a whole lesson just on one chapter. Well, there's a couple of ways to look at the Book of Mormon, and that is, let me use science as an analogy, and this may be a good thing to say up front, is there is a science that covers the smallest building blocks on Earth, and that's chemistry covers elements. And you could spend a whole lifetime at the element level. But then you begin to combine elements into organic compounds. And then there's a whole nother science that studies organic compounds. And you could spend hours and hours studying organic compounds. That's biochemistry. And then there's a, you could combine organic compounds and make a cell, just a single cell, one cell. And there's an entire science of cell biology. Then you can combine cells into organisms. And then there's another science. And so the idea is understand that the Book of Mormon is the same way. You can study, there is enough in each individual verse that you could pull mounds and mounds of truths out of the verse level of the Book of Mormon. But then as you get bigger and bigger pictures, it's a different science. And so what Mike and I are going to do isn't a verse-by-verse commentary. We tried a little bit with Revelation, and it got out <laughs> What did we do, like 15? 15, <laughs> 15 podcasts in 22 chapters. Like eight hours of podcasting. And Bryce, wouldn't you agree? We could have kept going. We could have done twice or three times that amount. And never seen our kids. Yeah. So kind of stay with us and just see that there's multiple ways to study the Book of Mormon. 
Yeah, that's good. So, you know, I'm just going to say this with chapter one, it's almost like chapter one is a mini message of the entire text. Right. So I think, Bryce, why don't we have you start off by taking chapter one and looking at it as, okay, what's the point? What's the message? The symbolism of chapter one. Chapter one is a type of the whole book. And I'm just going to jump into verse 10. There's some wonderful things that we'll come back to in the first few verses. But in verse 11, Lehi has a vision, and in his vision, he is given a book. Now, do you see the type and shadow there? The Lord has handed us the Book of Mormon. And so, like Lehi, we've been given a book. Now, notice what he was told in verse 11. Lehi was given a book, and he was told that he should read it. That's step number one. You've got to read the book. Read the Book of Mormon. But watch the promise. Verse 12, if you will read the book, the Lord seems to give us a great promise. Verse 12, it came to pass that as he read, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. If you will read the book, you will be filled with the Spirit. But then he's kind of told what to look for. Verse 13, this is what you're going to find in the book. You're going to find warnings. Lehi's warning was that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and that many people would perish and that other people would be carried away. But guess what? Lehi wasn't destroyed. Lehi didn't perish. And Lehi wasn't carried away because he was warned. So the book that you and I have been given is filled with warnings, warnings of danger. For example, don't be like Lahontai and come down even a little bit, even if you feel safe. One of the greatest warnings the Book of Mormon will give you is don't come down even a little. So read the book, look for the warnings, heed the warnings. Number two, verse 14, in that book, Lehi found many great and marvelous things. But then of all the great and marvelous things you'll find, end of verse 19, what did Lehi find in that book? As he read the book, It manifested plainly of the coming of the Messiah and also the redemption of the world. Find Jesus in the book. Find salvation in this book. And then if you do that, you will be delivered. One major theme is the very end of verse 20. I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. In all of its definitions, deliverance means many things. But may I suggest the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon is a beautiful type and shadow of this whole book. If you will take the book and read it, you will be filled with the Holy Ghost. His tender mercies will be upon you and will deliver you from the pains and the afflictions that life has for us. That is my testimony of this book and an invitation as we begin the study of it. Heed the warnings, find Jesus, tender mercies, deliverance. That's good. Okay, I want to geek out. I want to talk a little bit about the history of 7th century Judaism and the fights that they've had. All this makes sense if we understand that the religion of the Israelites is reformed in the 7th century. This is a text where Lehi is attacking the establishment. He's an outsider saying these changes are wrong and God is authorizing him to do so. Joseph, he's producing a text where in the very first chapter, it's dealing with the religious and political contentions of the 7th century? Are you kidding me? 
We'll put some of this in the show notes, some graphs and things that you can read, and there's lots of books you can read about this. And so I'm going to present some ideas that are lost, but I want to just read the very first verse of Deuteronomy to kind of give some context here. So here's Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. Now, before I read this, what does the word Deuteronomy even mean? It's, it's a Greek word, deutero, and then nomos. And those are Greek words. Deutero means the second or two, and uh, nomos is law. So it's the second tongue of the law. The background story to Deuteronomy, according to tradition and according to the text, is Moses is standing on the east side of the Jordan River. He doesn't get to go into the land of Israel, and he stands there with his peeps, with his homies, and he says, hey, listen, let's talk about what we just have been through for these last 40 years, and I'm going to put you under covenant to follow God. And he gives him a bunch of statutes and a bunch of rules, and at the end, there's some cursings and blessings, and then he pieces out and he leaves. And the children of Israel walk across the Jordan River. So they go from the east side to the west side. And then we read uh, the book of Joshua, where they go through the conquest narratives. Well, here's the King James Version. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain, over against the Red Sea. That's Deuteronomy 1.1. Well, actually in the Hebrew, it doesn't read like that. This is what it says in the Hebrew. It says, these be the words which Moses spake when he was on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, that is a huge breadcrumb, and the distinction matters. And what I'm saying is this. The book of Deuteronomy, and this is from history, was textualized after Moses dies. So there's a bunch of narratives in the end of Deuteronomy where Moses dies. And of course, Moses didn't write that. And if you've read the Book of Mormon, you know that Moses doesn't die. So there's problems with Deuteronomy. So as Latter-day Saint, this shouldn't unsettle us. But what we're reading here is that this is a text that's been put together later after Moses is long gone. And then there's all kinds of other problems. But first, I want to talk about the book of the law. And this story is told in first, uh, 2 Kings 21. So in the very first verse, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. So first of all, if you're an eight-year-old, Bryce, what kind of king are you going to be? A very innocent one. Yeah. You're probably going to be running the show through your advisors. Yeah. He's not really running the show. He's eight. And so uh, in scholarship, this is going to be called the Deuteronomistic Reformers. Uh, the scholar John Hall, who taught classics at BYU, he calls this the Jewish apostasy. Uh, my understanding of the Book of Mormon, I think if Lehi was doing this podcast, Lehi would stand here and say, yeah, this is the Jewish apostasy, guys. This is happening. So verse 1 of 2 Kings 21, he's 8, and then you skip down to verse 8 of of 2 Kings 22. And I apologize, we're in 2 Kings 22. I'm looking in paper scriptures because I'm a dinosaur. And the top right page says 2 Kings 21, but I'm actually in the 22nd chapter. Anyway, so we're in 2 Kings 22. Hilkiah the high priest said unto, uh, however you want to say that guy's name, Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So the scribe brings it to the king. And the king and the scribe, they read it. And it says in verse 11 that he rent his clothes. And then it says in verse 12, the king commanded Hilkiah and makes a bunch of commands. Verse 13, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. The book that is found, and this is in scholarship, is the book of Deuteronomy. And here's why. And it's a lot to unpack. And we're not going to read all of 2 Kings today because we're trying to do a Book of Mormon uh, podcast. But if you read 2 Kings 23, there's a bunch of reforms that Josiah puts in place. And this is 640 BC. So this is, you know, not long before Lehi. The reforms that he makes 
I'm going to call the Deuteronomistic reforms or Josiah's reforms. And his reforms are all reflected in the text of the book of Deuteronomy. So work with me here. If Moses said the words in the book of Deuteronomy, we've got major problems. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's an entire chapter about limiting what the king can do. That's in Deuteronomy 17. That's a problem because there is no king when Moses is in charge and there is no king in the period of Joshua and the judges. We don't get kings for a long time after Moses, hundreds of years. So the analogy would be, imagine I produced a text and I said, this is an authentic George Washington autograph text. And in the text, as the president of our nation, he gave the articles of internet use and said, these are the articles of safe internet use for this new republic. And I presented it in a society of uh, historians. Well, they would all say, Mike, um, that's a forgery. It's an anachronism. Well, welcome to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, this doesn't destroy my faith in what the book of Deuteronomy is teaching, but what it does is it puts it in historical context. The entire book of Deuteronomy has many clues that show that there are parts of it, if not all, that were textualized in the 7th century BC, not in Moses' day. Well, what's happening in the 7th century? The reforms of Josiah. So I'm going to go quick because it's a podcast. You can go and read this. In the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, God, speaking to Moses, says, oh yeah, you remember Moses, how you talked with me in Exodus, and we had that whole feast on the top of the mountain, you and all your friends, Well, in Deuteronomy 4, God says this, The Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of his words, but you saw no similitude. You only heard a voice. You see, according to the book of Deuteronomy, you can't see God. You cannot see him. And it gets even more complicated. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, it says that the temple is the place where the name of God shall dwell. But if you read Exodus, which in scholarship is considered to be put together probably around 900, and then before and after the exile, depending on how you take the priestly narrative, and now we're getting into the weeds. But just know this, that in the Exodus narrative, the temple is the place where Yahweh shall dwell. He walks among the saints. He walks with them. They hear his voice. He has back parts and a hand. And if you've ever read Exodus, I remember being on my mission and a minister would say, you can't see God. And I'd be like, look right here. Moses spoke to him face to face. And then, you know, you do the whole proof text cherry pick game where you pick different texts that say you can see him. And then the minister says, well, you can't. Well, all this makes sense if we understand that the religion of the Israelites is reformed in the seventh century. And all of a sudden you can't see God. What about the divine mother? Well, she's taken out. Now, we'll get to that when we get to 1 Nephi 8 and 11. But in archaeology, there's all kinds of evidence that there was a belief in a, in a divine mother. And I believe there's hints of this in the Book of Mormon. Uh, what about the number of temples? If you've ever read Genesis, everywhere the patriarchs go, they're building altars and having theophanies. They're seeing the Lord. And in the Book of Deuteronomy, there's only one place where you can worship God. And there's only one place where you can sacrifice the Passover. The main text for this is going to be the 12th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. This is huge. Uh, The 12th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy rewrites Passover law. It rewrites sacrificial law. It says this is the place where God shall choose to put his name. That's verse 5, but it's all over the place in the 12th chapter. But then it says this, that there's only one place which the Lord thy God shall choose 
to offer offerings. That's verse 14. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. Now, you've got to read the chapter. You've got to read Deuteronomy 12. But essentially, this is what the author of Deuteronomy is saying. There's only one place to sacrifice to Yahweh. It's the place where God shall choose to put his name. And in the 7th century, the designated place was Jerusalem. But it doesn't say that in the text. And so there was a lot of fights with the tribes that lived in the north. They had a place called Gerizim, and there was a temple there. And you can see the foundation of the Gerizim temple today. You can go and visit it. It's in occupied territory. But if you go there, there's a visitor center there, and you can watch a video where they talk about this contention. Where does Yahweh want sacrifices to be made? And this was a fight that happened for centuries. Well, the author of Deuteronomy is saying it's in Jerusalem. Now, this is going to be a problem. Because if you've read Exodus, the Passover is a family sacrificial experience. You kill the Passover, you put the blood on the doorposts, and you eat the Passover. That's Exodus. Deuteronomy says no. Deuteronomy says that it becomes a national pilgrimage. You go to Jerusalem to offer the lamb. And so what did Jesus do? He followed the commands of Deuteronomy even though, and this is my contention, that this is a 7th century innovation. This is repackaging old texts, redefining religion. So instead of having multiple shrines, and by the way, archaeologically, there's so many books on this. Literally, Israel is riddled with temples all around, up and down Israel. Well, in the 7th century, that changes, and the king wants to make it centralized. And then the question is, why? Why do they make these changes? Bryce, if you're the king and you make everybody come to your capital a couple times a year, what kind of things have you changed in your nation? Well, I control them a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, you got your thumb on them. Also, where does the money flow? Into one location. Yeah. Imagine if you could control where the Olympics takes place every four years, and you could make all the nations come to your city. Or where everybody ate dinner. Yeah. What restaurant everyone ate at. Yeah. You would have a great deal of control. Yeah. So you can't see God. Let's just recap some of this stuff. There's no divine mother. You can't see God. He doesn't dwell anywhere because he's not corporeal. He doesn't have a body. There's only one place where you can sacrifice. Oh, by the way, Moses, you never did see me. You only heard my voice. There's no mention of the Day of Atonement in Deuteronomy. It's just absent, completely absent. That's a big deal, uh, especially as I understand it through the Book of Mormon writers. And then what about secret things? If you read Deuteronomy 29, 24 through 29, it's this idea that the secret things are not to be known. I'm just going to read verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, the book of Deuteronomy has a lot of good. It is every man's Torah. It's very humanitarian. There's a lot of things that the Deuteronomist does that Nephi takes, but he lets go of the things that are false. And I like to liken this into true religion. No matter what your spiritual background is, no matter what religion you are, there are things in every faith tradition and every culture that God wants us to pick up and go with that is true, that is good. But that which is false, we need to let go. And Nephi models this for us. Uh, So does Lehi. When Lehi gets outside of Jerusalem three days, this is in the second chapter, he offers sacrifice. And his sons, Laman and Lemuel, complain. 
My contention is that Laman and Lemuel were Deuteronomists. They did not believe that you could see God. They did not believe that Lehi was a prophet. They followed the Deuteronomistic historians rewriting of religion. And that's why, in my mind, it makes sense how over and over again they say to Lehi, we're following the law. We're doing what the text says. And so this is a big deal because the very last verse of Deuteronomy 29 talks about, I'm going to change the word secret things to another way to read that word. And the word is mysteries. Now with that word in mind, secret things and mysteries, look at the very first verse of first Nephi. I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father. And having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favored of Lord in all my days, yea, having had a great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God, therefore I make a record of my proceedings in my day. Three times Nephi is going to use that phrase. And my contention is that the word mysteries is a code word. And he's talking temple. Nephi is going to invite you into the presence of God. To the Deuteronomists, you get to God by following the law. Now, Nephi is going to follow the law. He's going to say, hey, we're going to follow the law, but it's Christ that saves us. But to Nephi, he's going to say, come to the tree, come to God, come to the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 6, verse 4, the fullness of mine intent is that I might persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. What's fascinating to me is all the negative things that the Deuteronomist does in the Jewish apostasy, it's like a checklist. One by one, Lehi takes out his bat and he just swings for the fences and he's, he's knocking home runs right out of the park. So let's talk about the very first one. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.12, you can't see me, Moses. Nobody can see God. Uh, well, what does First Nephi 1 say? He saw God. Verse 8. Verse 8. Uh, he was overcome with the spirit, carried away in a vision, and he saw the heavens opened, and he thought he saw God on his throne. So it's a throne theophany. If you've listened to our Revelation stuff, we got a ton on that. And he was surrounded with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. This is a temple text. There's a ton in Deuteronomy rejecting this notion that there's heavenly beings, the Bene Elohim or the astral bodies in, in Deuteronomy 4. And so right in the first eight verses, in verse one, we've got mysteries negating uh, the verse on secret things in Deuteronomy 29. We've got the prophet seeing God. Now, we're not going to touch uh, the divine mother in this podcast. That's going to come up later. But what about how many temples? Well, clearly he's have a temple. He's having a temple experience right here. But then in the second chapter, he offers sacrifices in verse seven. It says it came to pass that he built an altar of stones and he made an offering to the Lord. So he's making a temple. On and on we go. But I think we've covered some pretty big ones here, Bryce. We've talked about seeing God, the council, how many temples, altars, and astral bodies and secret things. So that's quite a laundry list of changes that the Deuteronomist made that Lehi stands in contradistinction to, and he stands as a prophet, and he forces his sons to make a decision. Now, Joseph Smith's producing this text in 1829, 1830. Wellhausen, he's, the, he's like the, uh, the grand poobah of biblical textual criticism. He comes around in the late 1800s. He's a German. So much biblical scholarship comes out in the 1800s in Germany. And Wellhausen comes around and he says, I think that there may be multiple authors, multiple textual traditions behind the Torah. And it's going to be called the Documentary Hypothesis. And this is not going to be a podcast on the Documentary Hypothesis, but 
just know that it's pretty safe to say that there's multiple strains in the Torah. And Joseph, he's never been to these schools, and he's producing a text where in the very first chapter, it's dealing with the religious and political contentions of the seventh century. Now, I know everything Bryce said is true. This is about coming unto Jesus, but this is what scripture does. They say uh, in, in Judaism, they say that there's 70 faces of Torah, and you can hold up a gem, and you can hold up this different 70 faces and see how the light shines on the gem. Well, this is what I call the historical face of the text. In other words, yes, this is absolutely about coming to Jesus, and we should take the book, and we should come unto Christ. But also, there's some punning going on, and there's what we call a polemical text. This is a text where Lehi is attacking the establishment. He's an outsider saying, these changes are wrong, and God is authorizing him to do so. Mike is such a great when he geeks out and throughout these podcasts, he's just going to do so much to help you see insights from history and, and all of that. And I just appreciate always hearing from Mike. Let me turn back to the text and give a practical application as you study First Nephi. Um, I remind you that Nephi is writing this at the end of his life. These are the small plates. These are the plates that he began, Second Nephi chapter 5, towards the end when the Lord says, make another set of plates. And these are the plates that will save Martin Harris's mistake when he loses the 116 pages. So these are not the plates that Nephi began when he first gets to America. He, he writes them 30 to 40 years after they leave Jerusalem. So when Nephi writes chapter 1, he's looking back on his life. So look at verse 1. First Nephi chapter 1 verse 1, as Nephi looks back on his life, what three things does he point out had a tremendous influence on his life? The same three things that have had an influence on your life. Number 1, his family. Number 2, having seen many afflictions in the course of my days. Number three, the things of God. But I'd like to focus on number two. I think one of the central messages of 1 Nephi is this central thought, having seen many afflictions in the course of my days. Nephi, looking back on his life, says, my family shaped my life, the things of God shaped my life, but so did the trials that I faced. Now, what's ironic is that Laman and Lemuel faced those same trials. And so I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, one of the great themes of 1 Nephi is how we respond to our trials determines what we become. It is one of the very great messages of the Book of Mormon, and it hits us right up front. I would suggest at some point Nephi and Laman were at the same spiritual plane. When they were little boys, maybe, let's even assume it that the beginning of 1 Nephi, they're close to the similar plane. But by the end of 1 Nephi, they have become dramatically different people because of how they each responded each time. So let's do kind of a Nephi's way and a layman's way. I'm going to summarize layman's way in the book of Mosiah. So many, many years later, looking back, they're going to say, here was layman's tradition. So turn with me to Mosiah chapter 10, speaking of the Lamanites and specifically Laman in verse 12, it says they were a wild and a ferocious and a bloodthirsty people believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this. Notice in verse 12 and 13, there's a repeated word. Every time there was a trial, Laman felt wronged. I've been harmed. I've been wrong. You did me this wrong. This isn't fair. Yeah. What did I do to deserve this? <laughs> 
children do that all their parents all the time. <laughs> That's not fair. We do it from authority figures, and we even do it with God. And then 14, 15, and 16, when we feel wronged, what's the next response? Very, very typical. We get mad. We get wroth. We're angry. We're angry at mom and dad. We're angry at society. We're angry at police. We're angry at teachers and authority figures. We're angry at God. And then verse 17, we want to hate and hurt. Layman feels wronged, he gets wroth, and he turns against God and becomes more and more bitter. So let me summarize Nephi in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you'll turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 136, when the saints are at uh, winter quarters, I, I love the Lord's description here. And I know we're not in the Book of Mormon, but this is a beautiful description of Nephi. Verse 31, I remind you, so Doctrine and Covenants 136, 31, my people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory which I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. That is a monumental doctrine. Trials are to coach us. And if we do not bear chastisement, we can't have the reward. Wouldn't you say that this is universal for this all of us? This is universal for all. Joseph Smith was told in Liberty Jail, endure it well. Like we're not escaping this. Yeah. And then the saints were told at Jackson County, he that is faithful in tribulation, which would suggest we can be unfaithful in tribulation. I'm going to throw this out there too. When we did our podcast on Peter, that was the main message there. So if right. you haven't heard our Peter stuff, go back and listen to that because Bryce lays this out. Now, notice in the next two verses, verse 32 unpacks a nice little process, verse 32 and 33. Let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord his God, that his eyes may be opened that he may see and his ears open that he may hear. For my spirit is sent forth to enlighten the humble and the contrite. So do you see that process? When trial comes, if you will learn wisdom by humbling yourself and calling upon God, you will receive the Spirit, which is sent forth to enlighten the humble, and your eyes will be opened that you may see. Now, I would suggest one of the things you see clearly is God himself. God is revealed in our trials. Number two, we see ourselves. I know how strong I am because I have been pushed to the very edge. We see each other. We see purpose. We see the plan. So much of the sight that comes into our life comes because of a trying time. So if you respond to that trial by feeling wronged and getting wroth and turning to hatred, and you're never going to see. But if you will humbly call upon the Lord, he will enlighten your eyes and you will see. We're going to watch Nephi go through that process. Now, we're only going to do two of Nephi's trials. And what I'd like you to do is pay attention to Nephi's response, Laman's response, and what is happening to Nephi, what's happening to Laman. We're going to measure Laman's response by what does it take to get him back on course? How big of a stick does the Lord have to get down to get Laman to do what he needs to do? Eventually, he's going to get a smaller stick and then a bigger stick. So let's go to 1 Nephi chapter 2, the command to leave Jerusalem. 
So notice in verse 11, when they get to the rock and, and Lehi says, oh, that you might be like this valley and firm and steadfast. Verse 11, this he spake because of the stiff neckedness of Laman. They did murmur in many things against their fathers. They called him a visionary man. End of verse 11, they thought he was foolish. Verse 12, they murmur. Verse 13, they did not believe that Jerusalem could be destroyed. So their response to the command to leave, no way, I'm not going. And they murmured the whole way, and they condemned their father. Now, what got them back on course? Look at verse 14. The pleadings of their dad. Now, will that work on the boat? Lehi will plead with them on the boat. Will it work? Nope. This is the first stick. And it works this time. It won't work next time because they're going to get harder and harder and harder. The more we murmur, the more we are stiff-necked, the more we resist God and feel wronged and get wroth, the harder we become and the bigger the stick it's going to require to get us to do what's right. Now, contrast that with Nephi. Verse 16 is one of my favorites because Nephi does not want to leave Jerusalem. He doesn't want to go. And that gives me hope because in my trials, I haven't been excited about my trials. I haven't loved them. And Nephi didn't love his, but notice what he did. I did cry unto the Lord. He did visit me. He did soften my heart. And I did believe all the words. In other words, he did the pattern that you laid out in 136. Yeah. He learned wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon, instead of running away from God, he ran towards God. And that, brothers and sisters, is the key to run towards God in our trials, to cry unto him and allow him to soften our hearts. Now, what happens to Nephi because of this? Because of Nephi's response, remember what the Lord says, verse 22, you're going to be the leader. You, the youngest brother, you're going to lead this group. You will be the teacher. So already you begin to see a separation between Nephi and Laman, right? Laman has to have a chewing out in order to get on course, and Nephi is already stepping forth into that leadership role. May I suggest it's because of how they responded. Okay, trial number two, go back for the plates. How does Laman respond? Verse five, this is chapter three. Thy brothers murmur, saying it is a hard thing. Isn't that a classic? It's hard. It's a wrong. I feel wronged. Life's not fair. It's hard. Yeah. But verse 6, Nephi has not murmured, and then his classic statement, verse 7, I will go and do the things with commanded. That's how he responded to a hard task. Not murmuring, not whining, not feeling wronged. I'll go do it because I know the Lord will help me. Verse 15, what's happening? As the Lord liveth, we will not go down to our father until we've... Do you see the man that Nephi's becoming? Now, what happens to Laman and Lemuel? What are they doing? Verse 28... When things go wrong, they beat Nephi with a rod. You see, first they went from calling their dad a visionary man, and now they're beating him with a rod. What stick does the Lord pick up to get him to go? Verse 29. An angel. He sends an angel. And even after he sends the angel, verse 31, what does Laman start to do? (laughs) We can't do it. We can't do it. He murmurs. Now, chapter 4, what's happening to Nephi? Verse 1, let us be faithful in keeping the commandments. He is mightier than, the Lord, than, than all the earth. He can help us. Verse 6, I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things that I should do. I also like how he cites Moses. So yeah. he has a scripture in mind 
Nephi is recasting himself in the character of the mighty king that's representative of Yahweh. I'm coming and I'm going to bring us to the promised land. And it's beautiful. He turns to God, not against him. Verse 10, I was constrained by the Spirit. Verse 11, the Spirit said unto me. Verse 12, the Spirit said unto me. Do you remember the promise in Doctrine and Covenants 136? If you humbly go to the Lord in trial, the Lord speaks to you. The Spirit comes and you begin to see. Nephi's seeing himself. He's seeing God. He's seeing his brothers. He's seeing this whole experience more clearly. I want to say something about seeing really quick, Bryce, and it's, Nephi is a prophet, but he doesn't get the whole picture. God says, go get this, but he kind of leaves it up to Nephi to figure out. And you know the attempts, right? They went and got their stuff and they failed and they negotiated. And first they asked, they tried all these different ways. And it's the third time that he's successful. In other words, the Lord lays out the direction without all the details. And I love this as a narrative for our expectations of prophets. I think so many people want prophets to have everything figured out and everything mapped out. And if that was the case, they wouldn't need revelation. And so that he kind of learns as he's doing, there's a great quote by Elder Oaks where he says, most revelation comes when we're on the go, when we're doing stuff. Be busy doing, and we're going to mess up sometimes. And notice his attitude when it didn't work out the first time. Yeah. Not defeated, not wronged, not wroth. He says, let's try it again. Yeah, we keep going. When his bow breaks, he's just going to make another one. May I suggest that there is the key to surviving life. When your first attempt doesn't go right, you don't need to cry and whine. You don't need to murmur. You don't need to feel defeated. You just try something else, knowing that the Lord's going to help you. If you respond like Nephi, you'll become like Nephi. If you respond like Laman, you'll become just that, a lame man. That's a good principle. It's just a powerful principle. And a pun. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I forgot we got one more. We can do seven. Should we do seven really quickly? One more trial with seven, and that is going back for the women. Now, this time, Laman and Lemuel don't complain until they have to bring the women back to the wilderness, and then they complain. And Laman rebels against Nephi. But what does Nephi do? He turns to the scriptures. He quotes them. He is a powerful man. Um, Verse 12, the Lord is able to do all things according to his will for the children of men, if it so be that they exercise faith in him. Verse 16, when he says that, they were angry with me. They came forth to lay their hands upon me. They were exceedingly wroth. They were going to bind me and leave me to die. Now, they're not going to actually kill him. They're not that cold yet. They will be later. But they're not actually going to kill Nephi. They're just going to let him die in the wilderness. Let let me be killed by the critters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to pour you with honey and let the bears come and get you. So verse 19, what's the stick that the Lord gets down to get them back on course? Tears of women. The tears of a woman. Now, will that work on the boat? It won't. Nephi's wife will cry, and it won't work on the boat, but it works here. Do you see how hardened Laman's becoming? And yet... Verse 17, what's happening to Nephi? Verse 18, he's bursting the bands from his hands. And verse 21, he forgives them. He forgives them. Do you see what kind of man Nephi is becoming? And what kind of man Laman is becoming? And they are growing worlds apart. Great principle. I'm going to geek out just for a second and talk about uh, Brian Stubbs. He wrote a book called Changes in Languages from Nephi to Now. Brian Stubbs knows a ton of languages. And in this book, he 
basically traces a lot of the languages in the Americas to Egyptian and Semitic roots. But what I really like about this book in the first couple chapters, he just talks about the names of Nephi and his brothers and how they're actual names of Arabia. And these names uh, were very common, but they weren't necessarily in the biblical text. And so Nephi's name is actually a pun. It's an Egyptian name that means uh, to be good. The very first verse, right, where he says, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, this is Nephi punning on his name. And this is what scripture does. A lot of times it uses words that sound similar and they do this in Egyptian text too. And a lot of it has to do with the idea that it's holy. If you if you use a phrase and it sounds like another one and you can put them together, it lends holiness to the text. So he says, I, Nephi, I goodly, having been born of goodly parents, therefore I was taught somewhat in the learning of my father. And then he goes on and on and uses that pun of that word goodly or good. I like this, Bryce. We've talked about how I respond to my trials. Two people having the same experience, and they choose. They use their agency differently. Um, We've talked a little bit about the history of 7th century Judaism and the fights that they've had. We've talked a little bit about how this can represent the first chapter, kind of the story of our life. Nephi is going to be in the ancient Near Eastern milieu or motif of a king. He's going to do uh, battle with the chaos monster. Laban is going to be this monster that he's going to defeat. And then later at the sea, he's going to be tied up in this battle with the sea and this tension with his brothers. And finally, when we get later, he'll build a temple and build a name and a people and be enthroned as a king, which is once again, we're establishing the ancient Near Eastern view of him establishing his authority. So when modern readers read this text, and I've heard moderns say this to me, they've said, Mike, Nephi seems like he's castigating his brothers. He's putting them in a negative light. I say, yes, this is what the ancients did. This was how they wrote scripture. Nephi is being portrayed as another Moses. This is coming out of that period. This is not a 19th century document. If you want to know more about that, check out the show notes. We also did a YouTube short just about how Nephi is like King David. King David killed Goliath and cut off his head with his own sword. Nephi kills Laban and cuts off his head with his own sword. And so just as David helped to establish the kingdom and the throne and order in Israel, so Nephi establishes another Israel in another land. He is a new King David. We have a new Israel or a new branch of Israel in the Americas. This is not a 19th century document. My testimony is that everything Bryce talked about is so true. Like this is a pattern for our life, a pattern for principles. Like how am I going to respond when things go bad? And it's also on every page about Jesus. So it's just beautiful stuff. And with that, we'll end. And thanks for listening. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.